morning, everyone. Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. We come here confident that you have a message to deliver. It's humbling to think, Lord, that you'd use me as your vessel. Uh, but really, that is my request, that this would be a time that you would speak to your people. And uh, what an encouragement it is to me that you knew who would be here and what is going on in each person's life or marriage or family or job or relationship. And you knew what each person needed to hear from your word. So while I've labored over this message, if there are things that are missing from my notes that you have, especially for these people listening now, then I ask that you'd bring those things to mind and, and deliver them. I think as John said, we're children. We come hungry and thirsty spiritually. We, we want to be fed. Uh, we want to receive your word. And we um, need to satisfy our bodies physically and even more so spiritually. So I pray that would be a time, or this would be a time for that to take place, Lord, that as, that, um, as your word goes forward, that we would be sanctified and convicted and challenged and encouraged, that each person would, would feel as though you're speaking to them and ministering to them. Pray for any unbelievers who are here this morning. It'd be, it'd be um, probably unwise on my part to think that everyone that can hear me at this time is a believer. So we ask that for those who are unsaved, Lord, that you would show them their need for Christ and grant them repentance and faith. And just use me to exalt Christ during this time, Lord, and see the importance of finishing well and this theme in Scripture and the wisdom needed to, or how we need to apply wisdom so we would finish in a way that pleases you. Help us to learn from these examples that you've recorded so honestly for us. We thank you for them, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to open your Bibles to 1 Kings 11, I'd like to show you a verse there. won't be there for too long since we've looked at it pretty extensively. The title this morning's sermon is Wisdom Needed to Finish Well, Part 1. We've been in a series um, called Pursuing Wisdom, and there's something that took place in Solomon's life that uh, was very sobering to me, and I wanted to develop because I think it's a theme among the lives of many different kings. I want to begin with a question. Raise your hand if you've heard of Charles Templeton before. Anyone heard of Charles Templeton? Okay, a few people. I hadn't heard of him. I was reading about him last week. He is a gentleman who ministered with Billy Graham. And together, the two of them, along with Tory Johnson, founded Youth for Christ. My understanding is Billy Graham and Charles Templeton together were called the Gold Dust Twins. Anyone heard that before? The gold. Isn't that it's kind of an odd name, I thought? But John MacArthur said, by all accounts, Charles Templeton was the more gifted preacher he was intelligent, handsome, winsome, eloquent, oratorical, brilliant, persuasive, effective. All those words were used to describe him. Charles Templeton overshadowed Billy Graham, end quote from John MacArthur. Billy Graham and Charles Templeton went on an evangelistic tour of Europe. They preached to large audiences in England, Scotland, Ireland, Sweden, and other places. In 1946, the NAE, which is the National Association of Evangelicals, gave him the award Best Used of God. Now, I don't personally think they should have an award like that, or I don't know if they, how they would decide who wins that award. I told Katie if uh, the winner every year should probably be a missionary in a third world country, and I don't even see how someone in the United States could win that award, but they decided that, that he should win it. In the 1950s, Charles Templeton was given an opportunity to have weekly television programs on NBC and CBS. He preached in the United States to as many as 20,000 people per night across the country. 
There were youth rallies that were filled with thousands of young people to hear him. He became a church planner and a pastor. He attended Princeton Seminary and had a week of gospel preaching at Yale University. And then in 1957, he declared himself an agnostic, and he rejected the Bible and he rejected Christ. He attributed his rejection to the reading of Thomas Paine, and then over the next 10 days, he read Voltaire, Bertrand Russell, Robert Ingersoll, David Hume, and Aldous Huxley, and by the end of those 10 days, he was virtually an atheist. He left the ministry with $600 in his pocket. He returned to Canada, and he became a journalist, and then he became a politician, and he almost became the prime minister of Canada. Only five years before his death, he wrote the book, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. And the part that surprised me most about Charles Templeton wasn't that he turned from the Lord as many people turn from the Lord. The part that surprised me was that he did it so much later in life and that he did it after having served the Lord um, so faithfully for so many years or even so many decades. And when people commit apostasy or when people turn from the Lord, we typically expect them to do it when they're young, right? not after they have been serving the Lord for some number of decades. When they've, when they've done that or when we've seen someone have that sort of history, we expect them to finish well. And even we've probably all seen those uh, statistics about the number of people leaving the church seem, can seem very alarming at times. And those statistics are almost always about young people, right? Young people that have grown up in the church, then they've left their home, or they're out from underneath their parents' authority, or they're out from underneath their parents' spiritual influence. Perhaps they're at college and are liberal professors, and then they turn from the Lord, and they're no longer counted, uh, you know, among the church. And my thought is that those were young people that were never born again. They had never committed their lives to Christ. They were um, trying to please their parents, and I'll just tell any of the children who are listening, whenever you do something pleasing— your parents or we are looking at you, and we're considering whether you're doing that to please us or please the Lord. And our desire as your parents is always that what you're doing is to please Christ. Um, but we're trying to distinguish that at times. We're wondering, is this something my child is trying to do to impress me, or, is my, or does my child have, have Christ? Um, is Christ his or her chief, chief concern? And so you'll see these young people, and they grow up, and they've, they've just been trying to please their parents for some number of years, and then when they're separate from them, then it becomes evident that they were never really Christians. But because of that, because of these statistics and the number of examples we're familiar with, we typically expect that when apostasy is committed, it's, it's committed by um, young people. Uh, when people have walked with the Lord for some time, then we see this track record that gives us confidence in their faith. But what's interesting about that is when I read the scriptures, and especially when I read Kings and Chronicles, I'll see individuals who turn from the Lord, but they didn't do it when they were young. They are people who were, they were good kings. They loved God. They served him. They were zealous for him. Uh, they were passionate. They did tremendous things that, it, that you read and are moved by the, um, you know, really the, uh, ferocity with which they removed idolatry and their passion that they that they had for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then to see them compromised later in life. And so if you look in 1 Kings 11, the one, the one verse that stood out to me is verse 4. We have the context from the few weeks we studied Solomon that I don't really need to say much more, but notice it says, when Solomon was old, 
his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. And so if Solomon was the only example of this, we wouldn't be having this sermon right now. I don't think of developing a sermon from one instance or one outlier. But when I see something like this that's then repeated different places in Scripture, I mean, you know, I enjoy preaching verse by verse, but there are some themes that can really only be developed by jumping around and looking at a few places, and this is one of them. But I wouldn't be talking to you about this, except that what we see here with Solomon happened with many other kings. And I've said enough times that when God wants to stress something to us or he wants to make sure we don't miss it, then he repeats himself. And this is repeated. It is, it is definitely a theme. It's, it's uh, sobering to me. The lengths churches might go to to ensure that youth grow up um, knowing the Lord. I'm not, I'm not the biggest fan of youth groups. As you know, sometimes I wonder if some of those um, groups are doing more damage. Maybe they're more responsible for some of the kids that turn from the Lord because children aren't the responsibility of the church, the responsibility of parents. Um, but with that said, as you look in Scripture, you have to appreciate that there is a real danger associated with getting older and not staying, staying committed to the Lord. And Solomon is one of the first ones to demonstrate this. So we're going to, I can't really commit as much time to each example as I would like, or else this would get really stretched out. What I wanted was I wanted you to see quite a few examples in this sermon and then um, part two, so that you would see the repetition would start to just really weigh on you, and you'd be able to say, wow, I mean, this really did occur frequently. This really was a, uh, almost an epidemic for these kings, so that we can be on guard against this happening in our lives. And so this brings us to lesson one. These kings reveal it's hard to finish well. And the first example is Solomon. These kings reveal it's hard to finish well. And then the first example is Solomon. Andrew Chris was at the first service and we were talking after service, just standing out there. And he said something about the sermon and it kind of introduces this discussion about it. And I said, yeah, I hope that the Lord allows us to serve together for uh, many years to come or decades to come. And, And then we both basically agreed, yeah, let's keep challenging each other. You know, I feel very confident in where Andrew or or Pastor Nathan or Jim are at in the relationships with the Lord, but at the same time, we should be be sharpening each other. And so there's this conversation of, hey, you challenge me. You ask me about my marriage. You ask me about my purity. You ask me about my relationship with my children, and I'll, I'll be sure to do the same with you because to see what happened with some of these men who look to be such godly examples um, should, should prevent all of us from letting our, our guards be down. Now, it's surprising to me that it says this happened with Solomon when he was old because we typically think that the older the, what do we say, the older the wiser. Job thought this, Job twelve twelve. wisdom is with the aged and understanding and length of days. Kind of associate wisdom with older or the aged, and, and then you think foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child or a young person, right? And so you associate foolishness, foolishness with young people. And since older people are supposed to be wiser, when Solomon turned from the Lord when he was older, this is just one more instance of his foolishness. The next example, these kings reveal it's hard to finish well. Example two is Saul, King Saul. Saul finished so poorly that we could easily forget how well he started. You don't have to turn there, but just go ahead and take your minds back to the beginning of Saul's reign, or even take it back to uh, prior to his reign when he was first chosen to become the next king. Early on, he was humble. 
He was humble. He wanted to avoid the spotlight. Do you remember what happened when they came to anoint him? Where was he? They couldn't find him because he was hiding among the baggage. I mean, many people might, you know, covet that sort of spotlight to be anointed in front of the whole nation like that, but, but not Saul. He was given this wonderful supporting cast where God had, God had changed Saul's heart, but then God also changed the hearts of many men to surround Saul with so that, you know, God just set him up for success is one way you could say it. Soon after that, he has this great victory where he delivers the men of Jabesh-Gilead from the, from the Ammonites. But then over time, Saul's downfall, you know, it wasn't women, it wasn't finances or any of the things that commonly end up being the, the downfall for politicians or for religious leaders. It was bitterness that crept into Saul's heart uh, or jealousy, or you could say both bitterness, jealousy toward David. And Saul then neglects most, if not all, of his responsibilities as king because he becomes obsessed with this one goal in his life, which is murdering David. And so by the time you get to the end of Saul's life, it isn't too much to say that you really can't find anything good about him. He has failed as uh, a father to his son Jonathan. He has failed as the king of the nation of Israel. He has failed as the commander of Israel's armies when he should have been preparing Israel for their battle against the Philistines the night before he happens to be where? He decides he'll consult a witch or he'll be with a medium, and, the, and so the Israelites go out to battle and are slaughtered. F.B. Meyer said it is a very solemn thought. No career could begin with fairer, brighter prospects than Saul had, and none could close in more absolute midnight of despair. And yet, such a fate may befall us unless we watch and pray and walk humbly with our God. The next part of lesson one, these kings reveal it's hard to finish well. Example three is Hezekiah. Go ahead and turn to 2 Kings 20. Second Kings 20. Hezekiah is one of the two greatest reformers in the Old Testament, along with Josiah. Purified the temple. You might remember, I think it was about a year, no, probably two years ago, I preached a series on outreach. I wanted to see us grow in the areas of evangelism. And we looked at Hezekiah as this great example because he reinstituted Passover. I think it had been neglected for over two centuries. He was king of the southern nation of Judah, and he invited the northern kingdom of Israel to come down to Passover, knowing that they were an apostate nation at that time, and that most of the inhabitants of Israel would have rejected his invitation, which is what happened. Hezekiah sent messengers through the northern kingdom, and the, inhabitant, the Israelites largely ridiculed his, his invitation, a good example for us in outreach, that you don't share the gospel with those you expect to respond well. You, I mean, if they were going to respond well, they'd already be Christians, correct? And so he decides he's just going to share the gospel, or he's going to preach or invite people to come to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, regardless of the response that he'll receive. He um, purifies the temple. He has this great victory over the Assyrians because he trusted God. You remember the, what had taken place was the northern kingdom of Israel turned from God, and God brought the Assyrians down, conquered the northern kingdom, took them into captivity, and then the Assyrians continued their journey south, and they reached Judah. They destroyed all of the fortified cities in the nation. The only fortified city remaining was the city of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, in this very dramatic moment, he goes in, and he just pours his heart out to the Lord, 
And he says, we're going to be destroyed by the Assyrians unless you help us. We have nowhere else that we can turn. He expresses his tremendous need for God. And then in one of the most dramatic moments in the Old Testament, I mean, not in some respects, not too far behind the plagues that are unleashed on Egypt, God sends out the angel of the Lord, and he slaughters 180 or 185,000 Assyrians that night, delivers the Jews from the Assyrians, and what you see was you see a godly king who had looked to the Lord for help during that time. Now, a little later in Hezekiah's life, and I know that this is, um, there's people on both sides of this view, Hezekiah got sick, and God told him that he was going to die. I'm of the persuasion that Hezekiah should have died. <laughs> it's not to say you can't pray or seek to live longer when you have a, a disease or an illness, but in this case, God had made it clear that it was best for Hezekiah's life to come to an end, and he seemed to insist on living, and God allowed Hezekiah another 15 years, and people will preach that, and they will say that it's a good example of prayer and then God answering that prayer. But there's sometimes God allows people to have what they want to their own detriment. And the extra years that Hezekiah was given did not benefit Hezekiah and did not benefit the nation either. So we're going to pick up right after Hezekiah's life has been extended. In 2 Kings 20, look with me at verse 12. It says, At that time Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, he sent envoys, or these messengers, with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick and also that he had recovered. So this can almost look like this king of Babylon is concerned about Hezekiah or is celebrating Hezekiah's recovery from his sickness. Don't think that for a moment. That's not at all what's taking place. This is an entirely political visit here. The Babylonians are at odds with the Assyrians, and the king of Babylon, familiar with Hezekiah's past history with the Assyrians, hopes that he's going to be able to get the Jews to be this ally with him. So the king of, I know it's a lot of nations here, but the king of, the king of Babylon is hoping that the Hezekiah, the king of Judah, will then bring his nation to ally with him against the Assyrians. And look at verse 13. Hezekiah welcomed them. He showed them all his treasure house. He showed them all the silver. He showed them the gold. He showed them the spices. He showed them the precious oil. He showed them his armory. He showed them everything that was found in all the storehouses. It says there was nothing in his house or in all of his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Why did Hezekiah do this? Yeah, why did he show all this to them? He wanted to impress them. Assyria is the world's superpower. Babylon is a close second, and I don't know where Judah is, maybe third, fourth, maybe somewhere behind Egypt. But the point is, Hezekiah was pleased, and I mean in a fleshly way, to received this attention from such a powerful nation. And so when they came, Hezekiah didn't want them to think that he was puny or insignificant. He wanted them to understand that he was wealthy and that he was part of a powerful nation. And so he shows off and he tries to impress all of them. What he tries to do is he tries to impress ungodly people who are part of an ungodly nation. Look what happened next in verse 14. Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah and he said to him, What did these men see? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Did Isaiah know the answers to these questions? 
Yeah, he did. Hezekiah, or Isaiah is asking these questions for the same reasons that parents ask their children questions. <laughs> They're allowing time for the children to do what? Confess or repent. So if all the kids tune in for just a moment, when we ask you questions, we know. We're just giving you the opportunity to be humble and acknowledge it before we have to uh, discipline it out of you. And so to Hezekiah's credit, he acknowledged it, but, you know, against Hezekiah, you could say, well, he's dealing with a prophet, and prophets see and know things, and so Hezekiah must have known that Isaiah already knew this, but he still confesses all this, and then listen to what happens in verse 16. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, or all that you showed them, that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. So basically, all that you show them, they're going to come and they're going to end up taking it. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, some of your own sons who will come from you. And this happens. Some of the Hezekiahs in the Messianic line, some of Hezekiah's sons or those future kings of the southern kingdom of Judah did end up being taken into Babylon. This is looking 100 years into the future, but it ends up transpiring exactly like Isaiah says here. Who do we know famously who found himself or who do we know who famously found themselves in Babylon? Daniel and all his friends. Ezekiel's book is written with him prophesying by the river Chabar, which is in Babylon. And so everything that Isaiah said here came to pass exactly like he said it, the 100 years in the future. And he says, some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, they're going to be taken away and they're going to end up becoming eunuchs in the palace of Babylon. More than likely, Daniel and his friends were eunuchs when they were there. And then verse 19, look at this. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. That's not what you'd expect him to say, is it? You'd expect him to recoil at being given this um, pronouncement of judgment. And so you could wonder, well, why does he say this is good? You don't have to wonder too long because the rest of the verse tells us. He thought, well, why not if there will be peace and security in my days? And so what did he say, basically? Well, it's unfortunate, but at least it's not going to happen to me. And so it's a very selfish thought that 15 years, again, that Hezekiah was given. They did not make him a better man. And so this terrible blunder, which is really the greatest of his life, it could have been avoided if he would have died when God told him to. And then maybe the worst thing that happened during these 15 years is Hezekiah ended up fathering who? Manasseh, the worst king in the entire Old Testament, even though Manasseh, well, interestingly, I just thought of this, but we're in a discussion about kings finishing well. And you could say Manasseh is one of the best examples of finishing well in that he did repent, but because of all of the, we can be forgiven and there can still be consequences. And so despite Manasseh's repentance, there was no way to remove all of the wickedness from the land that he had instituted and his son carrying on that same wickedness that, that he had brought, including even the sacrifice of children to, to some of the idols. And so Manasseh finished well in the sense that he repented, but there were still terrible consequences for the nation. I think the prophet Jeremiah said that they were brought into Babylon simply because of Manasseh. And so Manasseh was born during these extra years. It was just a, it was a very sad end to the end of a life that, of an otherwise very godly man that started off wonderfully but didn't finish well. And then our next example, these kings reveal it's hard to finish well, Asa. Our fourth example, Asa. Go ahead and turn two books. Well, turn to Second Chronicles 14. Chronicles is after Kings. Second Chronicles 14. 
2 Chronicles 14. We'll begin at verse 8. Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah. They were armed with large shields and spears. There were 280,000 men from Benjamin that carried shields and drew bows. And all of these were mighty men of valor. So that's 580,000 men. That sounds like a pretty formidable army. But what, what actually determines whether your, arm, whether your army is formidable? The army that you're facing, right? So look what he faces in verse 9. It says, There the Ethiopian came out against him with the army of a million men and 300 chariots. So almost twice the size of Asa's army. Verse 10, Asa went out to meet him. They drew up their battle lines. They drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zephathah at Merishah. And Asa cried to the Lord his God. This beautiful prayer. Look at this. He says, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you. And in your name, we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. And this is a tremendous prayer. I mean, you see the way he depends on God. He expresses his, his helplessness very vulnerably. He says, if the help doesn't come from you, we're not going to be able to get help uh, anywhere else. We need your intervention. He recognized even that because Hezekiah was the king of God's people, that when they were attacking the Jews or the son of the kingdom of Judah, they're actually attacking God himself. He says, don't let man prevail against you. Now, just to be candid with you, I read this prayer and I look and I say, how many times have I prayed like this? How many times have I poured out my heart to the Lord this sincerely, this vulnerably, you know, this transparently in my life where, Lord, if you don't help, then the help comes from no, no place else, no one else. It comes from nowhere else. And just to see this, it's, it's wonderful. Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless like me. I am relying on you completely. In your name, I am facing this, and then fill in the blank. People can look at the Old Testament, like, for, for example, this account, and say, well, why does God record this? What does this have to do with me? I'm not a king of a nation. I'm not facing the army of another nation. No, that's true. We don't face physical battles like, like Hezekiah did, but we do face spiritual battles, and we can look at the way that these men responded physically to see how we should respond spiritually. No, we don't face physical enemies, but we definitely face spiritual enemies. We're not in these physical battles, but we are in spiritual battles, and we can look at the examples of men like Hezekiah and learn from them and say the way that they responded is a great example of the way that we should respond. And so because of this, or Asa, excuse me, not Hezekiah, and so look at the way that because of the way he depended on God, the way that God responds for Asa. Verse 12, the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with him, they pursued them as far as Gerar. The Ethiopians fell until none remained alive, for they were broken before the Lord and his army. The men of Judah carried away very much spoil, so they get this victory. Now they just receive all this plunder, they attacked the cities around Gerar. The fear of the Lord was upon them. They plundered the cities. There was much plunder. It's repeated, so you can't miss how much plunder and spoil they received. Struck down the tents of those who had livestock, carried away an abundance of sheep and animals as well. And so God just honored greatly Asa's dependence on him. He gives him this victory over the enemy, and then he gives him all the plunder and spoil to accompany that. 
Keep all that in mind and turn two chapters ahead to chapter 16. What does your Bible have for a title or a heading for chapter 16? Asa's last years? Okay, so we're jumping to the end of Asa's life. Look at verse 1. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah. So now there's going to be a lot of names here. So just to keep this clear, Asa is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He is being attacked by Baasha, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Considering the great victory that we just saw Asa receive in chapter 14 against the Ethiopians or against an army that was almost twice the size of his army, when Asa gets attacked here by the northern kingdom of Israel, how would you expect him to respond? He's going to depend on the Lord, isn't he? Just like he did before. He'd received this great victory from doing so earlier in his reign. Of course, that's what he's going to do here. If you remember when we looked at Deuteronomy 17 and God told kings not to multiply horses, wives, wives for alliances, or wealth, I said it's because those were earthly resources and it would be very easy for a king to trust in those earthly resources versus trusting in God himself. And I even said that even if a king did not have a large enough army, if he had a large enough treasury, he could then use wealth to pay off the nation attacking him or even pay off another nation to attack the nation that's attacking him. That's what Asa did here. Look with me at verse 2. Asa took silver and gold, so he's trusting in the wealth that he multiplied, and sadly, he didn't even take it from his own treasury. He took it from the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house, and he sent them to Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, and he said, there's a covenant between me and you as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I'm sending to you silver and gold. Go and break your covenant with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. So he doesn't trust God. He trusts the king of Israel, or, or he, turns, he trusts the king of Syria instead for help. And interestingly, look what happened. Verse 4, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, listened to King Asa, and he sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they conquered Ijon, Dan, Abel, Maim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. Verse 5, and when Baasha, the king of Israel, heard what happened, he stopped building Ramah, he let his work cease, and then Asa, king Asa of Judah, took all of Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Baasha had been building with them. And with them, he built two other cities in his nation, Geba and Mizpah. I know that was a lot of names and places. Here's what you need to know. Asa did something that was very compromising at best, I would say sinful at worst. And does it look like it worked or does it look like it failed? How does it look? It looks like it worked. It look, looks like it worked tremendously. This is one of the premier examples in Scripture of a very important truth that the test of obedience is not how something looks or the test of obedience is not how something goes or the test of obedience is not whether something is successful and the test of obedience is not whether something fails. The test of obedience is whether it agrees with God's Word or not. The test of obedience is not how well it goes 
but how well it agrees with the pages of Scripture. And so there are people who, I'll give you one example. If a believer marries an unbeliever and the unbeliever becomes a Christian, the believer is tempted to turn around and then defend their actions. That's not an instance of obedience. That's an instance of God being gracious or merciful. That's an instance of Romans 8.28 and God bringing good from sin, which he can do, but it doesn't justify, justify the behavior or stop it from being sinful. And so what we see here with Asa is we see someone doing something wrong, and it went well for them, or at least it seemed to go well for him at first, because now look what happens in verse 7. God sends Hanani, the seer, which is another name for a prophet. Prophets see things, so they're called seers also. Came to Asa, king of Judah, and he said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria, and you did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you, and the king of, and Syrians are going to become an enemy to them in the future. We're not the Ethiopians. So now God takes Asa's mind back to chapter 14 and that earlier great victory that God had given him over the Ethiopians. And he says, weren't the Ethiopians, were not the Ethiopians and Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand for the eyes of the Lord, a wonderful verse here, run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. In other words, God is looking for faithful people. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Now the question is, which is the same question all of us face when we're rebuked, or the same question really anyone faces when they're corrected, how is Asa going to respond? Is he going to humble himself and repent and own his fault or his sin, or is he going to respond in anger or pride? Look in verse 10, it says, Then Asa was angry with the seer. He put him in the stocks in prison, so he punished him. For he was in a rage with him because of this. He wasn't just angry, he was raging at him. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. So instead of humbling himself and repenting, he, his flesh flares up, he becomes furious, he begins punishing the prophet. He doesn't even stop there. There's some, t- some people, when they're suffering, they want to make sure others around them are suffering. Asa is angry, and so he lashes out at anyone around him, whether they've done anything to him or not. And we'll see this developed more in part two. But I want to just kind of plant the seed right now for you to keep in mind. One of the things that characterizes, I think every single other king will look at after this, is they became unteachable. They could not receive correction. Every single other king was corrected later in his reign and refused the correction. I suppose it's very easy when you're king and you have all that power and authority to disregard correction or think that you're above it. We see that happen with Asa and it happens with everyone else. Look in verse 11. The acts of Asa from first to last are written in the books of the kings of Judah and Israel. That refers to the books of first and second kings. You can also read about Asa in 1 Kings 15. And then God graciously gives Asa one more opportunity to turn back to him. Look in verse 12. It says, In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet, and his probably a severe case of gout or gangrene, and his disease became severe. 
But even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but he sought help from physicians. Now, I said this is one more opportunity for, of God graciously reaching out to Asa. Now, you could look and you could say, well, this doesn't seem very gracious to me. He gave him a disease. Do you see how this is gracious? He's trying to humble him. He's trying to bring him to the point where he, what, what is one of the um, strongest ways God brings people to their knees or causes them to look up at him through suffering or through sickness or through trials. And God did introduce this disease into Asa's life, I would say, very graciously, giving him one more chance as he approaches. He's within the last couple years of his life to turn back to the Lord and humble himself, but he didn't do that. Notice it says he went to the physicians. Absolutely nothing wrong with seeking medical help or seeking physicians' help, but there is something wrong when you seek physicians' help without seeking God's help. And so he's stubborn, he's bitter. Look in verse 13, Asa slept with his fathers and he died in the 41st year of his reign. And those few words when it says, look in verse 12, it says, he did not seek the Lord. And that characterizes the end of Asa's life. I mean, it characterizes really this chapter. He didn't seek the Lord when he was attacked by the northern kingdom of Israel. He didn't seek the Lord after Han and I confronted him and tried to bring him to repentance and turn him back to the Lord. And he didn't seek the Lord even after contracting this disease. Just like he turned to the Syrians for help earlier, now he turns to the physicians for help instead of turning to God. And I just look at this and I think, what a sad end to a man who started so well. He had been so um, ruthless with the idolatry and the sin in his land. He had that great victory over the Ethiopians. He had responded really well in chapter 15 when a pro- we didn't look at it, but another prophet had confronted him and he owned the, the message from that prophet. And so just to see someone who started so well and finished so poorly, it causes me to want to pray that God will allow me to finish well. I have to look at this and have, and I'd have to be very foolish to read about these men, be it Solomon, be it Asa, be it Saul, be it Hezekiah, or be any of the other men we'll look at in part two and think that I'm beyond this happening to me. And I would invite you to apply the same to your life. These records are for us to consider with an amount of gravity and not think that we're above this. None of us should look at this and think, well, it happened to them, but this is never going to happen to me. It's, it should cause all of us to want to press into the Lord, never not let our guard down, and be aware of this reality of even some of the godliest men turning, him, turning from him like this. Now, I know that's fairly challenging, and I do want to give you some encouragement because there's another side of this that I don't, I don't know that I can perfectly strike the balance here. Because even when we talk about finishing well, and I'm not going to, to minimize the importance of that, I will ask this. Do any of us really finish that well? Or at least, do any of us finish perfectly? Or do any of us live perfectly? No, I mean, we can have some good days, but I know that they're not good enough. We can do well, and we can do well for a season, but we're not doing well enough during those seasons that we would ever find ourselves in heaven in our own merit. All of these kings serve as types of Christ. If, if you don't know this, Israel had 20 kings and Judah had 20 kings. All of Israel's kings were bad. The closest to being good was a man named Jehu. 
And that was it. No good kings in the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom of Judah had a few good kings. Of those few good kings, only a few of them finished well. And of those kings who finished well, none of them finished perfectly. And by that I mean they were all sinners. They had flaws. They failed. They didn't make it into heaven in their own effort. And these kings serve as pictures or types of Christ. And as I've told you before, every type breaks down. We can talk about types. I love them. They're one of my passions. People come up to me and they say, hey, Pastor Scott, I was reflecting on that type that you shared, but there's this point that the type stopped looking like Jesus or doesn't resemble Jesus in this way. Absolutely. If the type didn't break down, it wouldn't be the type. It would be the reality or it would have the substance. It would be Christ himself. And so all of these kings, even the ones who finished well, didn't finish that well or they did fail. And why is that? Because there's only one king of kings. There's only one king that truly finished well, and this brings us to lesson two. Jesus is the king of kings who finished well for us. Jesus is the king of kings who finished well for us. And this is where I mean there's this balance. There's this difficulty, and I'll, see, and I'll invite you to try to consider the balance with this question, okay? I'm not joking. Who lives your life? You want to say you do. What does Galatians 2.20 say? It is no longer I who live, but... Okay, so who's living your life? You're living it or Christ is living it? You want to say Christ lives it in you, but then you remember the sins you've committed and you don't want to attribute those to Christ. So then you pull back from saying Christ is living your life. And then you want to say, well, I live my life, but then you also know you're born again and Christ is living in you or living your life through you. And so there's this tension. So I don't want to minimize, I don't want to minimize our responsibility as free moral agents to finish well, but I do want to say this. We have a king who finished well on our behalf. We have a king who finished well on our behalf. And it blessed me this week as I considered how well he fulfilled that standard for kings. If you just consider the contrast with Solomon, I told you he's one of the most dramatic types of Christ in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 17 tells kings, don't multiply these things. Okay, let me make it real simple. Deuteronomy 17 told kings not to have too many earthly resources because you could trust in them. What did the king of kings have? Matthew 8, 20, he said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The son of man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Imagine that. A, a king, the king of kings who doesn't even have a bed. Kings were supposed to put their trust not in their earthly resources, but in God himself. How well did Jesus, how well did the king of kings put his trust in God himself? First Peter 2, 23, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So when we talk about kings were to trust God, there's no better example of that. Jesus is the premier example of a king who trusted God the Father. So here's the encouragement I have for you. Yes, we need to be concerned about finishing well. It is a theme in Scripture that certain men didn't. But the other side of this is we can't finish well, at least not perfectly, because we're sinners, because we fail. But thank God, 
that he provided a king who finished well for us. If we're in Christ, he finished perfectly on our behalf. Hebrews 12.1, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and lay aside every sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, which is implying what? Finish well. Run this race. Finish this race well. But then what does it say in the next verse? Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so Jesus, he's, he's run this race for us. He is the author of our faith. He's the finisher of it, where Christ, he prevails where man has failed. And so we can finish well because Christ finished well for us. Father, we thank you for that truth. We thank you for what Christ has done for us, that we don't have to look to ourselves and our ability to live this life in a way that's perfectly righteous. We know we fall so short from being able to do so. We thank you that we can keep our eyes set on Christ. We're commanded to do so in Hebrews 12 too, that we can look to him, see him as the author and finisher of our faith, the one who has um, ran before us and run so well that we can be confident in the work that he has done, that we don't have to be confident in ourselves. We pray by your grace that, that we would finish well, Lord. We pray that um, the gospel would work in our hearts to continue transforming us into the image and likeness of your Son. We thank you so much for what he has done for us. Our, we, our only hope is in him. We, have, we can put our hope no place else, and so we thank you for what Christ has done, a perfect, a perfect life that he lived, a perfect righteousness that he achieved, that he's willing to impute to us and receive on himself all of our unrighteousness so that we can stand before you both righteous and innocent. We thank you for that, Lord, and pray this all in his name. Amen.